Hi, I'm Jim Calloway. And I'm Sharon Nelson. This is the 36th edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. Today, our topic is Anatomy of a Law Firm Audit. And of course, we got that title kind of thinking of Anatomy of a Murder, that old wonderful Hollywood movie. But let, let's tell folks why we chose this particular topic, because it is unusual. John and I actually started to research law practice audits for the purpose of writing an article, and we were just shocked at the dearth of results. We found a considerable amount of material on financial audits of law firms, primarily the kind that's intended to ensure profitability and efficiencies but almost nothing relating to a true law practice management audit. It appears there was a void to fill, so we did go ahead and write the article, and now we have a podcast too, Jim. That sounds great. We don't have audits in Oklahoma, and, and I think most state bars don't, but I have. we do have a program for lawyers who get in minor trouble that, that is more related to you know errors and omissions or or management issues rather than dishonesty. Uh, and, and we have uh, a program where a diversion program where they get out of the disciplinary process and they do various things, go to classes and whatever. So as a part of that, I teach a full day class on law office management. I teach a half day class on client communications. And I do sometimes go into the offices but it's certainly nothing like the audits you've described here. So I, th I think it's really interesting to kind of look at the different state rules and, and the way they apply. And I also might note one other thing before we move on, which is many states have the, the random anonymous no-notice trust account audit. And so we'll probably talk about that a little bit more in depth. But we, I know some states you can actually uh, – there's a knock on the door Monday morning and the uh, – uh, auditors are there from the Bar Association to audit your trust account. That must be uh, the beginning of a bad week for a lot of people, even <laughs> if they don't have any problems. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people get the willies when that happens, even if they're not doing anything wrong. <laughs> but you're right, Jim. There's a lot of difference between the various uh, states. And even here in Virginia, you know, for kind of minor transgressions, they're very apt to be sent to CLEs or something like that to simply try to get educated. So typically when they do the law practice audit here, I think the, the transgressions of been considerably more serious. So when an audit occurs, a lawyer is pretty in pretty bad trouble with the state bar. Usually they've entered into an agreed disposition with terms, and they probably have received a private or public reprimand. The lawyer is then commanded by the terms of that agreement to engage the services of a law practice auditor, to pay for those services, to open all of the computer and paper records of the law firm, and to comply with all the auditor's recommendations. And generally, the auditor will make a follow-up visit to ensure compliance. It, it's really tough walking into those law firms, Jim, just like that Monday morning you were mentioning. They don't exactly roll out the red carpet for us. We're pretty much as welcome as a, a tax collector. Oh, I can imagine that. And, and you know, let's, let's just kind of talk a little bit, you know, when you walk into offices, and I do a small number of in-office consultations. We charge a fee for those and Frankly, we'd like to do the classes and other things where you can reach more people if we can. But, but certainly when you walk into a law firm, there, there's kind of two different impressions that you can get. And, and one of them is that the law firm is spotlessly clean. And at some point, somebody will make a snarky remark to you about it's great that you came because we haven't been able to see the top of lawyer's desk for a, a long time or something <laughs> like that. And then you go into law offices that that really just 
connote trouble. Now, I'm not talking about a few files piled up on the desk or even in the corner of the floor. I know a lot of lawyers operate like that, and some of these files get so big, you know, you can't really (laughs) deal with them in one hand. But certainly, you can just tell an office that there's been a lack of attention and things just look disorganized. I think one of the things to me that is most amazing is people come into a law office with some of the most important matters in their lives. And when when you see a really disorganized office, I just don't know how their clients are entrusting these important matters to them, Sharon. Yeah, not when they look like that. So when we go in to do an audit, and again, this is kind of a full-scale deal. The first thing we do after we've got a, a, a contract and a retainer received, we sit down and interview the attorney, which is always fascinating. In general, we have found that the attorneys will rationalize, dissemble, and sometimes tell bald-faced lies. It's, it just simply it seems to go against human nature to say, I did what was wrong, the fault is mine, there's no excuse for what I did. Have you ever seen the movie Dr. Strangelove, Jim? I have. Well, there, there was one case we had that really reminded us of it. The, the lawyer had a severe nervous tick in his right arm when he lied, very reminiscent of Peter Sellers in that movie. He finally became aware that his arm kept jerking up, and he planted his hand in his pocket, but the pocket continued to jerk when, when he prevaricated. It was really hard to keep a straight face. <laughs> and, of course, he An, knew An we individual were... with a built-in lie detector. That's amazing. <laughs> it was a built-in lie detector. Honestly, it was, it was hilarious to watch this pocket jerking up. <laughs> but anyway, we, we often look for signs of deceit like a, like a detective would. You find lawyers who can't meet your eyes. They're looking skyward for inspiration. They're blinking rapidly. They change their stories midway. They contradict themselves. They stammer. They fidget. You find rapid changes in voice tone or pitch. They excessively clear their throat or touch their face. Sometimes you'll see them suddenly get wide-eyed, pale, or red, especially if you strike a nerve. They'll use a defensive tone or they'll become inappropriately humorous or sarcastic. So if we have a question that seems to elicit that sort of behavior, it identifies for us something we might want to follow up on. Uh, As an example, if you get this when, when you're asking if other clients, not the ones who made the original bar complain, but other clients have complained, and, and you get that behavior when you're asking about, say, a failure to return phone calls, you know you need to check the phone message slips in the files. And we still find most solo small firm lawyers use those little pink slips. And if you ask whether clients are apprised of the lawyer's transfer of trust account funds to the operating account, and you get some of that behavior as well, then we zero into a comparison between those transfers and the monthly invoices that were given to the client. So experience has taught us to open up the interview with things that set the lawyer at ease. You know, it's kind of a baseline, a behavioral baseline. So we gather neutral information about staff, law school year of graduation, number of years at the current address, whether they rent or own, and other non-controversial stuff. And then we ask them to explain what happened in the complaint in the agreed disposition. And that's where it gets very interesting because the lawyer's already been found guilty of committing an ethical violation. And yet, we almost always see that there's a uh, anguish and tortured attempt to explain, to lessen the degree of fault, to blame other circumstances, other people, etc. It, it makes for very fascinating listening. No, no two cases are absolutely ever alike, but 
it's really amazing how this question gives quick insight into the attorney's character. In some cases, the attorney's already been found guilty of not cooperating with the disciplinary process by failing to provide the requested documents. And in some cases, they've even failed to show up for disciplinary hearings. So follow-up questions about those different complaints will evoke a wide array of responses. Some will deny that there were other complaints, hopeful that we'll find no evidence of them, wishful thinking always. Others, guessing that we are going to pour through electronic and paper files, do want to admit to some complaints while generally soft-pedaling the number of complaints and their seriousness. And we try to press for case names, which gives us a starting point for later investigation. Then we ask a lot of law practice management questions, you know, how the fees are handled, how often the trust account is reconciled, whether engagement letters are used, whether email communications are used with clients, whether there are closing letters, how time is kept, how billing is accomplished, what tickler systems they have, what law office functions are done by software programs, how they monitor the return of phone calls and answers to letters, and whether the attorney receives or pays any referral fees, etc. And again, depending on the answers you get to those questions, you know, it's kind of an away we go, as Jackie Gleason would say. After we get the answers, we kind of know where we have to head to look for the, the evidence in the case. Well, uh, that, that certainly sounds like an exhaustive and tiring process, uh, <laughs> both for you and the uh, lawyer involved. I, I, I will notice you mentioned trust accounts. You know, the trust accounts are really the source of so many problems. And I think I want to parenthetically add here that to anyone who's listening to this podcast who isn't familiar with the legal industry, these types of situations are a very small minority of the attorney population, certainly the exception rather than the rule. But trust accounts, lawyers are allowed to keep money that belongs to other people as long as they do good accounting for it. And in fact, we lawyers uh, typically don't have to be bonded like so many other people who hold money for others do. But even though you may not practice law in a jurisdiction, where there are random audits of trust accounts, the really good rule of thumb is that you should keep your trust account as if there's a possibility that somebody could come in and audit it at any time. And, and all that really means is, you know, whether you do it through software or through a paper ledger system, anytime a transaction is made in a trust account, you, of course, enter it in your uh, version of the check register, but you also enter it on a client account. So if you deposit $1,000 in the trust account from client A, you open up a new ledger entry and say client A has a positive balance of $1,000. And then when you write a filing fee check for 200, you show on the information for the check that that was client A's case and you go back to client A's ledger and you do minus 200 showing their balance is 800. Now clearly there's only a monthly or weekly process where you reconcile all of that to make sure that everything matches and balances and to also make sure that your staff knows that you're paying close attention to the trust account. But one of the reasons why trust accounting is, is, is such a problem is because at its basis it's just adding and subtracting. And hopefully the lawyers who've gone through advanced uh, college programs and degrees, even though you may not want to uh, uh, balance your bank account, everybody understands the uh, method of a bank account. Uh, have you seen any ethical problems with, with trust accounts that, that have particularly stood out to you, Sharon? Well, you know, what 
Jim, I mean, obviously we're going out to see people who are, are bad actors anyway, so unfortunately we, we have. We see particularly uh, a number of lawyers putting unearned monies directly in the operational account rather than the trust account. Sometimes they believe that if they make the client sign a document saying that a flat fee is earned upon receipt, they're okay. Obviously, under most states' ethics rules, this is not so. The, the fees must be earned first. We've seen other attorneys put monies just directly in the operational account, oblivious to the ethics rules. And, and maybe they're just so desperate to make payroll and pay bills that they feel no choice and simply hope that their, their acts will go undiscovered. Reconciliation of trust accounts, when we find these folks who are in trouble, is really pretty rare. Some honestly don't know how to reconcile the accounts, and, and so John actually works to teach them that. Others seem to regard it as a, a chore, and they avoid doing it. So a lot of time is, is simply spent explaining the clear meaning of the rules and how to comply with them. Now, not very often, but unfortunately, you know, I, I guess we would see this more than anybody, uh, there is the rating of trust accounts. Uh, it's certainly an imperative in a real law practice audit that you've got to review all trust accounts. And generally, when an account's being rated, you'll see large withdrawals over a fairly short period of time. And a look at the invoices will not seem to justify the withdrawals. And so you'll look as well at the file, and you won't see any evidence of that much work being done to justify those kind of sums. In many cases, the invoices to the client don't indicate the withdrawals. Uh, and that's, of course, another uh, clear warning sign that there's a problem because the client is unaware that the funds have been dispersed. And, and in some cases, long after a case is closed, the client leaves money in the trust account, and we've actually seen lawyers stop sending out notices of the credit balance and effectively convert the funds to their own use. And, and as you say, Jim, that this is rare. People should understand that what John and I see is is a lot of folks who are in very serious trouble, which is a very, very tiny uh, percentage of the profession. Another problem that we often see, uh, in addition to handling of money, which of course is important, is, is fair to communicate with the clients. It's almost become a cliche to uh, when you speak at bar association meetings and whatever. I know you did to say the same, the same to say that the most common complaint about lawyers by clients is that the lawyers won't return their phone calls. But that remains to be remains true, and 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 not always is the lawyer at fault. Sometimes, if you know if you're in a trial for a week, you need to be paying attention to the trial and not listening to your client complain once again about the unfairness of the custody visitation order that they agreed to. So there are times that it makes sense. But the bottom line is that when you sign up new clients, you need to make sure that they understand how your policy works and that they understand that, that you're not always going to be available to immediately return calls because you're taking care of all your clients and making sure that they don't run into trouble. So I think that's a good policy to set expectations. And then if you have staff, your staff should be aware of the uh, policies you have. And if you haven't returned calls all day and, and you just let the staff know that, you know, you're, you're stuck in court uh, and it doesn't look like you're going to be back, uh, then the staff needs to know without further instruction that they need to at least return the people's calls, explain the status and let them what knows to let, let them know what's going on. But beyond the returning of phone calls, there are lots of instances of failure to communicate. And I think that's one thing that the law offices of a few decades ago maybe didn't focus on as much as today. But it's important to give your clients regular status reports of what's going on, even if the status report is 
essentially that nothing's happened in 30 days and nothing's going to happen for the next 30 days, it still is important for the clients to recognize that you're on top of matters and you're monitoring it, even though there may, may be some uh, delays in the process. So uh, if you want to have satisfied clients who will come to you again for business and refer you other clients in the future, be sure that you communicate with them about their case and about what their status is. It'll make them happy and it'll make it much less likely that you'll have them going to complain to your state bar or other disciplinary authority about your handling of their matter. Well, I certainly agree with that. And of course, email has simply complicated matters because now if they email you and you do email communications with clients, they also expect you to return email as well. And, and that needs to be addressed, which brings us to engagement letters, which are not always required in a lot of states. I, I do think that they're a good best practice, obviously, and certainly with lawyers who've gotten in trouble with the bar, we always recommend them because they're desirable as a way of clarifying the scope of work and the financial arrangements so that it's very clear and it's in writing. Just as closing letters are very helpful in ensuring that a client gets a final understanding that their case has been closed, you thank them, of course, which hopefully will help bring them back, and, and there's a financial reconciliation as well, so we always recommend those. And, and to go back to engagement letters for a moment, they should all have an electronic communications clause in which the client gives consent to use electronic communications and acknowledges being told by the lawyer not to send sensitive information electronically. Also in that paragraph, that's where you can set expectations by saying what your normal response time is for, for email so that they don't expect an instant response. And for heaven's sakes, make that paragraph bold, maybe enlarge the print, and have it initialed by the client to limit the risk that these electronic communications will somehow come back to bite you in the future. Certainly, I would agree with that. And I would just stress that while your ethics rules may not require that all fee agreements be in writing, good business practices require that every engagement that you have be verified in writing and signed by the client. It's not only a clear communication with the client, but it's a great protection for the law firm as well. There's just no reason not to do that, although obviously some lawyers can come up with the exception to that rule. Time records are another matter that I assume that the auditors look at. I rarely, when I go in an office, look at time records because it's not the type of thing that I'm normally there to consult about. But if you are billing on an hourly basis, keeping your time contemporaneously, you know, by the tenth of the hour, or maybe some law firms have a minimum two tenths of the hour, uh, that's the minimum increment. I saw a case of one law firm that their minimum was a quarter of an hour, which I thought was a uh, I mean, a, a half an hour, I'm sorry, which I thought was a bit much for phone calls and, and such. But certainly uh, writing down right then why you build your time and what it was for is, is very important because if you wait till the end of the day to reconstruct your billing records, you will often miss a lot, which is not good for your business. And because judges that are going to rule on fee motions want to see contemporaneously kept time records, in, in our book, uh, Winning Alternatives to the Billable Hour, Mark Robertson and I wrote that even if you're using an alternative form of billing, you should still keep your time records. I will tell you that, that some people have questioned that, and I appreciate that. I was recently in a law firm that did nothing but plaintiffs, contingency work. They didn't keep any records of time. 
but but the senior lawyer who had a team of several associates that he was managing met with them at least once, if not twice a week, every week to go over every single file to give them their assignments and give them their deadlines. And so I appreciated in that one that the audit trail of time records wasn't as necessary for them because they had a whole bunch of assignments and to-dos and deadlines that were all documented in the file, which kind of served the same purpose if an outside person was to come to look in and see what you've done. You know, it's funny. Some of the, the records we've seen, literally, they have two words, you know, review documents or talk to client, nothing else. Their scrawls and everything was in increments of one hour or one and one half hours, and it never got any more finite than that. And you would ask the lawyer, well, how did you come up with this? And it turned out, of course, that it wasn't contemporaneous, and they sort of made their best guess. And you hear you hear that a lot, that I made my best guess. And, of course, that's not how to keep time. So that that is a problem. Moving on to tracking client complaints, it's it's pretty fast to go through paper files. People wouldn't think so, but I can go through a heck of a lot of files in, in just an hour. You can see threatening telephone messages, which the legal assistant has dutifully recorded on pink slips. <laughs> there are letters of complaint or threatening legal action documenting what the client believes was done wrong in the case. Most frequently, the complaints involve, as you mentioned, Jim, failure to return phone calls, sometimes to answer letters, excessive fees that the client wasn't expecting, missed filing dates, the failure to show up in court, no less, and even showing up in court in civil court with criminal paperwork. Uh, I guess that doesn't work very well. Uh, as, as a comic aside, we, we rarely find any signs of complaints in criminal files. Uh, John and I were laughing between ourselves that bad things happen to criminals all the time, and getting a rotten lawyer is just one of a long string of misfortunes, so they don't seem to complain about it. On the other hand, the complaints in family law cases are legion, so if they do domestic practice, we always go there first. And it's always useful to look at the files that gave rise to the bar complaints, because we find that there are often notes and documents that the bar never saw, which shed further light on, on the whole problem that was underlying the disciplinary action. Also, if the attorney is admitted to other cases where clients were unhappy, those files tend to document attorney misdeeds as well. Well, and, and I, I would stand up for the defense of, of family lawyers and note that that's one area of the law where the clients are sort of by definition unhappy. And so you can do a good job in that regard, but the uh, client who's going to have less income, less support and partnership from the leaving spouse, less with their children whatever, giving up a retirement plans, a lot of times they're going to be unhappy. They're the most prone to file compliance, and that just means that family lawyers need to be very careful about documenting those files to deal with the, the I, I, I hate to say it, but the inevitable complaints that occur in the family law <laughs> Good advice, Jim. One of the things Sharon mentioned to me that I've never been involved with in terms of, of going in law firms and asking to see computer licenses, but that a lot of that a lot of people still have bootleg software. They have one set of software that's running on several machines or perhaps student versions. I have I am aware of a, one one lawyer whose wife is a student, and so she has a student version of her machine. I assume that's probably legal. But for her, it's not for, for her. <laughs> for her, on her machine, yes. Yeah, that's right. One person, but, one machine. Not not on not on his machine. <laughs> that's right. But you know, let, let's note. You know, you've had a lot of that in Virginia. I know that BSA, the Business Software Alliance, has gone after a lot of lawyers and and received. Uh, some major settlement, and, and it's kind of amazing. The the law wasn't written necessarily to be uh, even-handed. I mean, the the cost of one illegal 
program under copyright law could cost the lawyer $150,000. And if there's more than one, and, and, and frankly, if this happened once, it's probably going to happen more than one time. It, it could be a, a huge amount. So uh, I, I think, you know, with the Internet and, and, and the ability that, you know, your computer's talking to other computers out there, this is just a risk that not only is inappropriate for a lawyer to take to have illegal software in their office, but it's just a risk that it's far too likely that you will get caught. And, it, and if you get caught, the, the pain is is so many times what it cost to buy the software illegally in the first place. It, it's just not, it's just not a, a good decision. So I do tell my, the lawyers I talk to uh, about software issues, Sharon, that you know, they are allowed to make a copy for backup, and I encourage them to do that and store the copies off-site. And then I also encourage you, don't leave those uh, CDs with new software around. They will get misplaced. You know, install the software, take the CD out, have your place that all your CDs with your software reside. So it's easy to find when you, whether it is to deal with some claim that it's illegal or whether it's just to uh, uh, rebuild your machine when the hard drive has gone south on you. That's good advice. And, and of course, the licenses should all be to, together, too. And generally speaking, when the BSA comes around, it's usually because an insider has reported the lawyer. So that you should be aware of that as well, I think, as an attorney. And then just to move on to another computer issue, and that's security. We regularly find that the technology environment is not secure. Things like, you know, the virus or malware protection has lapsed and they didn't renew. Sometimes there's no anti-phishing or spyware protection. We find technology that's often been left at the default settings, uh, which are well known to those who want to steal identities or data. Financial data is often on the computer, sometimes with an audit trail. And in some cases, so lawyers use software that's so old that it effectively is obsolete and will not allow them to perform their work competently, uh, particularly if they're doing, say, family law and they're doing calculations for equitable distribution or support. They're using old software with old numbers. That's just not going to work after a while. Computer backups, sometimes they're haphazardly made, not on any schedule. Sometimes they're not made at all. Often they're not encrypted. It's not uncommon to find clients' credit card data unencrypted on the computers, or worse yet, in paper notes stuck in the files. And some attorneys are so dependent on their IT support person that they have no idea how to get into their own routers, which is certainly something they should be able to do. But computer security tends to be in these offices one of the lowest ranking things on the attorney's agenda, that's for sure. Well, yeah, I think, you know, I hear from lawyers a lot of times, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with this technology. I just want to be a lawyer. But unfortunately for those people, dealing with technology and information technology is a part of the information processes of the law office. You know, it's easy to ask when you go through uh, some of these problems if if most of these lawyers are salvageable. And, and, and I have to say that, I, I, I again, you do the oddest to be able to let you, you know, talk about this in a second. But I think most lawyers who have these problems are salvageable. In fact, many times I've seen lawyers who were doing a great job for clients and they had legions of clients who just loved them and were getting great results. But because they put their clients first, they tended to neglect their own business practices. And so they found them getting into trouble. So even though nine out of 10 clients might be really happy and really getting a good result, that one out of 10 who was never getting their calls returned and, and, and the status on their case was being delayed and delayed could be the problem. So, uh, and, and then the 
frankly, some lawyers just get in trouble because of the tough economics of practicing law. Uh, you know, when I talk to the new lawyers, I say one of your early goals is to is to work really hard and before you buy fancy furniture or other things, see if you can set aside bank, you know, $5,000 and just leave that there and never touch it, pretend it's not there. Because there will be a time when cash flow will be such that you'll have to pull that money. And it's sure better to get your money out of savings than to go to the bank and borrow some uh, very high interest rate. But I, I think many lawyers that I've talked to who've had trouble are, are excited to come see you at bar meetings or other things and, and tell you how great life is now, how they really appreciate the advice you've given them. And and obviously, that's the goal that, that we're looking for, whether it's a, a more minimally intrusive program like a mini tab or it's the full-blown audit like you've participated in. Well, I couldn't agree more. And I, I do think many people come through this with flying colors. They, their attitude, even if it doesn't start out right, and after a while it, it gets right. And they do tend to come back and say, you know, hey, I'm making more money now. Uh, you know, business has turned around and, you know, my practices have improved. And, and that's wonderful. I mean, that's the result you want. But on the other side of the coin, there are a few lawyers who, uh, whatever, perhaps they're just corrupt or they're you know they're drowning in substance abuse or whatever it is but they can't be trusted to meet the high ethical standards that our profession requires and so there you really are reduced to amassing a body of evidence of their misdeeds and then bar council can act upon those as bar council sees fit uh, and you're out of that i do want to mention that this is an expensive proposition to do a real law practice management audit for us we found that the approximate on-site audit time is four to six hours for the first visit and two to four hours for the follow-up audit and occasionally because they didn't do what they were supposed to do uh, for the second audit there's a third audit that's required as well and the bulk of the work really is not on site it's off-site studying the electronic and paper records that you bring back to the office and then compiling a, a, you know a really good report of the results with recommendations so that might be easily 20 30 pages long and contain dozens of recommendations so that price range when it's done by experts I think is in generally in the neighborhood of six to ten thousand which uh, certainly these attorneys don't like that which I understand and, and they're hardly going to be receptive to auditors no matter what the cost. But if you think about what they're paying their attorneys for defending them against the uh, ethical violation charges, typically we've seen that the attorneys are, are two to four times as much in the end as what the audit costs itself. And often the audit can make the problem go away. And going away is really what you want to have it do. You want to make sure that these recommendations are implemented and that your practice gets back on its feet and you don't go ethically off track again. So so there's, there's a lot of value to that, even though it is a, a, a somewhat long and expensive process. But we always feel good about the practices that turn themselves around. And we like going back and seeing those folks. And, and when we come back to see them, then they're happy to see us. Now we get a smile. <laughs> We've got several that send Christmas cards, which is very nice, actually. So that makes us feel good. And that's all, folks, for this edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye, Miss Sharon. Happy trails, cowboy. <laughs>